And welcome to Anxious Laughter, my take on the past, the world around me, and the thoughts in my head. This is the first episode, so we're going to start with a little bit of housekeeping. The first thing to say is that I really hate the sound of my own voice. Now, almost everyone you ask, if you do ask people this, says they don't like the sound of their own voice. But I wonder whether it's just different to what they expect. When we hear ourselves speak, we don't hear what other people hear. We hear it through the bone and the flesh of our face. We don't hear it through the air like other people do. I've grown used to the sound of my recorded voice over the years. I've only done the podcast thing once. Um, a few years ago, I did a, a, a small piece for a friend's podcast. I am actually recording an interview on somebody else's podcast, probably before this one comes out. So by the time you're listening to this, I'll have done it twice before. But much as I've grown used to hearing my recorded voice through work presentations and various other things... I've never grown to like it. I think I've largely lost the Liverpudlian accents over the years. The rough scouse edges have been worn down to more of a generic northern. I still can't bring myself to say bath or path, but definitely the way I say the words theatre or hair have changed over the years. It's not been deliberate. An accent's something that you, you grow up with and it's formed long before you have the knowledge that you can change it, I think. Um, you either have to make a conscious effort to change or move to a new area. And I've never made the conscious effort to change my accents. And moving to a new area, by then my accent was fixed and all that could happen was it could soften slightly. I did once get told that I should try to tone my accent down when talking at work. I think I do anyway, naturally. I think I tone my accent down generally. I think living in the south of England for all these years, I've, I've, I've softened. I don't have much control over my voice at all. I can try to get a bit of emotion and stress and timing in there, but it all sounds a bit monotonous. I don't think that's helped by the fact that my vowels sound slightly downturned and northern. It gives a kind of uncheery demeanour to everything I say. So don't expect me to be doing impressions or anything. My ability to do even accents, let alone impressions, is is limited to turning up the dial on the scouseness, or turning it right down, as I normally do. I could also have a passable crack at not sounding too English when I speak in French. I marvel at the ability of people who can control their voices. They can change the shape of their mouth, their soft palate, their tongue, their nasal cavities. They can make themselves sound so different. I can't do that. It's something I'd love to be able to do, but I don't wish I could do it enough to put in the hours. We went to see Penn and Teller a few years ago. They were doing a Q&A more than a, a magic show. And so unusually, both of them were actually talking. I think it was Penn, though, the one who talks normally, who said that to do a magic trick, you have to repeat it about 10,000 times. And the only thing that sets magicians apart from people who aren't magicians is magicians are happy to do the same thing 10,000 times and most people are not. I'm not happy to practice another accent 10,000 times. Do you know, as I was thinking about this, I did a quick poll amongst my friends to try and think of anything that I'd voluntarily done 10,000 times in my life and I genuinely couldn't think of anything. You know, the social pleasantries like saying hello or the necessary things like going to the loo or drinking water 
didn't really have a choice in doing those. So I may have made peace with my accent over the years, but one thing I've not made peace with is the fact that my letter L's come out a little bit strange. I've got quite good at hiding it over the years, so you might not notice it too much. When I'm speaking in French, my L's sound a little bit like rolled French R's. And so that can lead to some confusion, but in English it just sounds a bit weird. I've never quite understood what's causing it. Until about a year ago, when I finally had my teeth straightened in my 40s, I had very out-of-place lower teeth and my tongue wouldn't go completely flat on the bottom of my mouth and I believe that a flat tongue is necessary to say the letter L so I'd wondered whether there was some mechanical thing happening but actually since then it still sounds a little bit strange although it is getting a bit better but I do wonder whether it's getting better because of the physical changes of the shape of my mouth or whether that's just I'm practicing more not 10,000 times though but why am I saying all this Let's get on to the podcast. You've already been listening to me for a few paragraphs, so you know what I sound like. For a few years now, I've had the idea rumbling around that I'd like to talk a bit. I do write a bit. I've had a blog online which goes in fits and starts, and I do write a lot privately. I try to write music and I keep a daily journal, so I enjoy the process of putting words together and trying to conjure up images. But the idea of doing a podcast in which it's me talking largely about myself doesn't come that naturally. I'm not extraordinary in any way. I grew up in the northwest of England. Via studies in Cambridge and a brief spell in Worcestershire, I made my way to London and that's still where I live about half the time. The rest of the time, I live elsewhere in the south of England, so that's home now. I studied maths at university and took a software development job as you do joined the civil service and then moved down to London. That's where all my friends had moved to and so it made sense for me to join them. Over the years, I've moved out of writing software into managing software and then managing teams and managing R&D departments and development departments and that's kind of what I do still now. But all of this, the career stuff, the personal stuff, I've done it all against a background of thoughts and feelings in my head. As has everyone. The background noise in my head's been there as long as I can remember. It's probably been there for longer than I can remember. It's a soundtrack which plays out all the time. It rises, it falls. There's no predicting it. I mean, I certainly had this in my head by the time I was a teenager. It's very hard to say whether it was there before, though. I can remember factual events from childhood but I find it impossible to remember how I felt as a child. When I think back to some of the things I remember from childhood, it's hard to tell the difference between remembering what I felt at the time and simply supposing and imagining what I would have expected to feel, projecting my adult self onto my younger self. I mean, I know I certainly had a tough time at school. I saw various psychologists in my teenage years and I knew that I didn't have many friends, I found it difficult to get along with people, I had quite a temper, I was quite irritable, and I never felt quite like I fitted in, but I didn't realise this was a problem that needed dealing with. I think as a child and as you grow into a young adult, you take whatever's around you to be normal. You don't question it, you don't look for things outside that. I mean, besides those visits to a psychologist as a teenager and 
a visit to the university counselling service or two when I was at Cambridge. It's really been 20 odd years since I've told anybody the extent of the thoughts in my head. Those people close to me obviously noticed that I was a bit withdrawn at times and sometimes I would become obsessed with worry to the point that it would overtake everything else and obviously that was painful for me and it was annoying and frustrating for those around me who wished I would just calm down. But even then I never thought this was something that needed addressing, I never thought this was actually a dysfunction. I was also quite afraid to talk about it, besides anything else, I'm a man and I'm British. We're told not to express feelings. That's not to say that I was brought up very differently to anyone else, but I think that until recently it's been expected that men man up. You know, we aren't told to share our feelings, we aren't told how how to express our emotions, we're told that men don't cry. And I was never told that explicitly, but it's all around us in society, and I grew up in the late 70s and in the 80s. That was what was around us, that was what was in culture and on the TV, it's hard to ignore. But more recently, in job interviews, in almost every job interview I go to, one of the things I get asked is, how well do you handle stress? It's not something I'd ever ask a candidate, but it's something that you always get asked, especially if you're going in for a management position. So I learned to bury those feelings. I learned to ignore them, to turn aside, think of something else. I learned how to avoid the triggers that could set those things off. You know, I enjoy curry. I've learned how to take them a bit hotter over the years, which for somebody who's only just recently progressed from lemon and herb up to medium at Nando's, that's quite an achievement. But whatever heat of curry I have, there's a particular ingredient which causes me to have hiccups. It's not a gradual thing, it's instant. This isn't as a result of eating too much or eating too quickly. As soon as I have my first spoonful, off I go, hiccuping. Now I know the Madras and the Danzac from our usual curry place on Brick Lane do it, but the korma doesn't, the tikka masala doesn't. Near work, there's Exmouth Market and there's a stall there that does Thai curries and the green curry is fine, but the red curry causes the hicking to start straight away. A while back, I thought, I'm going to investigate what's causing this. But the thing is, it never happens at home. I make curries at home and I make them from scratch and I put what I think is a reasonable selection of ingredients in. It never happens. The only time it's ever happened at home was when I used a bottle sauce because I was feeling lazy. But you know, it's never stopped me eating curry. I love curry. I mean, I try to guess whether the particular curry is going to give me hiccups and sometimes I get it wrong. But it's not going to stop me enjoying curry. It's a price I'm willing to pay, that risk that it might go wrong. Now, of course, if it was something more serious than hiccups, I'm not going to risk it. I've got quite good at knowing how to judge the risk. I can take a good guess at what curry's going to cause it or not. So, you know, sometimes in life, discomfort's a price worth paying to have fun. But in general, that's not what I do. In general, I avoid anything which stands any chance of being a trigger of anxiety for me. Very few things are worth the price that anxiety comes with. Now, anxiety is not the same as nerves. And depression is not the same as feeling sad. If they were, they'd be normal things. 
They'd be things we could get over. They'd be things that we could live through. If they were only those things, I'd be more prepared to accept the risk of a bout of hiccups in, term, in return for doing some of the things that I don't. I mean, I do get nervous, don't get me wrong. Not so long ago, I was asked to be the celebrant at a friend's wedding. Actually, the wedding of two friends to each other. I was really touched to be asked. I said yes immediately and started to think about it and thought, this might make me anxious. Never really did. It got right up until the time that I was standing in the venue. The groom had gone outside to meet the bride. They were all processing in together. And it was my job to tell the the congregation, although it wasn't in a church, you call them congregation or audience, to tell the people, let's say, to turn off the phones and stand up and get ready and the show was about to start. I wasn't anxious. Not at all. Now I was nervous as hell in the morning. I woke up quite early. Kind of 6.30, 7 o'clock. Couldn't get back to sleep, so I wandered through to the lounge and stared out across the river out the window, running the lines over and over again, trying to mark up where I would breathe, where other people should speak, trying to picture where people should stand and how it should work. As we went over to the venue, I could feel my stomach going slightly. A few butterflies, a little bit of nerves, but I had a cup of coffee and a can of water. I was fine. And yes, a can of water, they do exist, was new one on me too. Once I was talking, I was fine. The nerves slipped away and I got through it and it was pretty good, I thought. Now, had that been anxiety rather than nerves, I wouldn't have got through it. Had that been anxiety, I would have been a wreck outside the venue. I would not physically have been able to do that. Anxiety for me doesn't feel anything like nerves. Anxiety is much deeper and more profound. It's all consuming. It's not something I ever feel in addition to anything else. It's something I feel to the exclusion of everything else. It's such a strong feeling that there wouldn't be room to feel anything else at the same time. It cuts off my ability to think and it strangles any other thoughts which may start to come. Meaning that the idea of thinking positive thoughts or thinking about things that calm me is never going to work. It's only recently I learned to separate the two. I presumed that what I was feeling was nerves. And I presumed that that's what everybody else was feeling when they say they got nervous. And of course, I saw other people push through it. I saw other people do things that made them nervous and talk about channeling that nervous energy into excitement and into adrenaline and into the ability to succeed. And I started to think, is there something wrong with me? I can't do that. And soon, that starts to breed feelings of inadequacy. And given my history of depression, it wasn't particularly surprising that depression should come flooding back into my life as well. Now, in the same way anxiety for me is not the same as feeling nervous, feeling depressed is not the same as feeling sad. Sad feelings, like nerves, are something you can deal with. It's something that happens in life. You feel sad. You work through it. You talk to people, you receive encouragement, it goes away. Depression for me feels more like somebody's pulled the power. Pulled the power to my brain and my body. I don't want to do anything, I don't want to think of anything. I just want to lie in the dark until it all stops. But even with feelings and thoughts this strong, if you're brought up not to talk about them, you've no way of knowing whether that's what's going on for everyone else too. 
When you see somebody, no matter how well you know them, there'll be things happening inside their head that you know nothing about. That's life. That's healthy. You don't know what somebody else is thinking. You don't know what somebody else is feeling. And even if they share that with you, you don't know what it feels like for them. And so you just get on with life as best you can. You just presume that this is the human condition, that this is this is what you live with. This is what you struggle through in order to live. Now, they often say that the first step to things getting better is for things to get a lot worse. And things really did get worse for me, much worse. Now, I'd seen counsellors throughout the years, but I'd never really spoken to them about the depth of my anxiety. It wasn't that kind of counselling. It was more about putting in place tools, and mechanisms and ideas that would help me cope with stressful situations. It was about filling the toolbox with things that I could do that would help me when anxiety started to come on. We never talked about where the anxiety had come from. We never talked about how it felt. We just talked about mindfulness and focusing the mind and how to acknowledge thoughts without letting them take control. It's all very useful stuff, but I just lumped it along with this is what people need to survive. I, I, I still don't think I thought there was actually a problem. A few years ago, I left a job I'd been in for five years or so. I'd gone away on a long holiday to celebrate a big birthday. I'd come back and realised that this wasn't for me anymore. So I, I left and I found a new job. It was a new industry, a new part of London. It was new. It was exciting. Unfortunately, it turned out to be one of the worst experiences of my life. And the largest impact it had was on my mental health. You know, they say that if you put a frog in a pan of water and slowly heat the water up, the frog won't notice the small increments in temperature, so it's never going to jump out. And before you know it, the poor thing is boiling to death. It's going to die in there because there's never a single jump in temperature so much to trigger it to jump out. Well, unfortunately, that's not true. I mean, fortunately for the frog, but unfortunately for the purposes of this analogy, that's not true. If you put a frog into a pan of water and heat it up, then when the water gets warm, the frog's going to jump out. People don't. I mean, not from pots of water, figuratively. The water was getting hotter all around me, but I didn't notice it was starting to boil. Eventually, I did. And so I went on somewhere else. The new environment, much better. Much more my kind of environment. It was nurturing, it was caring, it was challenging, it was fun. But the positive feelings didn't last long. Over that year or so that I'd spent in the environment that wasn't for me, my mind had grown used to working in a way that wasn't natural. It was defensive. It was looking for chinks in people's armour. It was trying to guard the chinks in my armour. It had become warlike. And so going into a new environment, those reactions that have been built up, they still persist. I hadn't realised I'd come home from war. And so anxiety grew and grew because... I was seeing signs that I thought were worrying, which weren't. It all got too much. I was going into the office, but I was starting to fail at the new job because I wasn't settling in. Now, 
a few days later, I think, I, I was at the GP for something else. I'd had a lump in my finger for quite a while and the GP was trying a few things on it before I went off for surgery. I dislike GP's waiting rooms. The receptionists are always really grumpy. But at least with these check-in screens, I don't have to actually go and talk to anybody. I put in the first letter of my surname, my date of birth, and ping, I sit down at the seat and wait to get called. That was quite late at night. My GP does out-of-hours appointments, and there's just one GP working, so the corridors leading off from reception are quite dark, and there's one receptionist who looks very grumpy that she's having to be there that late into the evening, and so... By counting up the people in the waiting room and trying to group them together into groups that may go in to see the doctor together, you can kind of get an impression of when your turn's coming. Eventually, it came to my turn. The GP that evening was Dr. Tyre. It's not his full name. He's got a long Sri Lankan name, so everybody, including himself, refers to him as Dr. Tyre. He's a real honesty about him that I admire. So one of the things he tried on my finger was a steroid injection. I said to him, is this going to hurt? And he said, would it make you feel better if I said it wouldn't? I've always trusted him since then. So after talking about the lump on my finger and him writing a referral letter so I could get my medical insurance to kick in to go off and see the surgeon, we wrapped up the conversation and he said in the way GPs always do, is there anything else I can help you with today? I mean, it's mostly a way of getting you out of the office, but that day, it wasn't a rhetorical question. I said, actually, yes, there is. I sat back down and I told him exactly how I was feeling. I told him the depth of the anxiety. I told him how much it was commanding my life. It was a relief and it was also terrifying to have told somebody that I was struggling to cope. Of course, Dr. Ty is amazing. He reacted with calm compassion. We talked through the options. He gave me some options. He sent me away with some things to consider. And the road he set me on then is still the road I'm walking today. It's the road to getting better. But even in these enlightened times when everybody from footballers to members of the royal family are talking about their mental health openly, it's still very tough to say to anyone, I'm not coping at the moment. So why the hell am I doing a podcast? Well, there's a sense of trepidation in putting this thing together. You know, the biggest fear for me is that nobody's ever going to listen to it and that those that listen won't care and then won't listen again. But let's not think about that just yet. I mean, it'll only give me hiccups. There's another reason why I'm doing it, though. Last year, I finished a project. I decided to write down everything I could remember from my childhood. I'd heard stories about people who developed dementia as they grew older. And one of the things that everybody said helped was the idea of having concrete memories. So I decided to write it all down while I can still remember it. My family's not remarkable. My story's not remarkable. I've never climbed a mountain. I've never built a fortune in business. I've no idea how you declutter your house or your life. And I've no idea how you sell houses by painting them the right colour. I'm just an ordinary guy with an ordinary background and an ordinary job living an ordinary life. But I think that I've got a story to tell. But before we get into that, there's one thing I have to say. And that's, this is my story. So I'm going to be mindful of what I say about other people. Now other people are going to feature in this. 
But please do remember, this is my story, not theirs. I'm not going to put words into their mouths. I'm not going to try to guess how they were feeling. If I say anything that's wrong, I'm sorry in advance, but this is my genuine recollection. Your recollection might be different. But I'm not going to embellish anything. This isn't fictionalised. This is just the best recollection of my life that I can do. So on that note, let's go back to the very first thing I remember. Something that I'm pretty sure didn't actually happen. That was episode one of Anxious Laughter, a podcast by me, Dan McNeil, written by me, produced by me.